Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. In the Game of Thrones, you either win or you die. With over 10 million viewers per episode of Game of Thrones, one of the most successful television shows of all time, George R. R. Martin definitely wins. The success of the show is even more amazing considering its genre television, fantasy to be exact. Some assert that the power of George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire, the book series upon which the crowning jewel of HBO is based, comes from the author's willingness to ignore the conventions of the fantasy genre. Not so, argues Dr. Joseph Young in his new book, George R. R. Martin and the Fantasy Form. Using the frameworks of literary theory relevant to modern fantasy, Dr. Young undertakes a compelling examination of George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire and his employment of the structural demands and thematic aptitudes of the genre. Examining Martin's approaches to his obligations and licenses as a fantasist, Young persuasively argues that the power of A Song of Ice and Fire derives not from Martin's abandonment of genre conventions, but from his ability to employ those conventions in ways that further, rather than constrain, his authorial program. Written in clear and accessible prose, George R. R. Martin and the Fantasy Form is a timely work which encourages a reassessment of Martin and his approach to his most famous novels. This is an important book for both students and critics of Martin's work, arguing for a reading of A Song of Ice and Fire as a wide-ranging example of what modern fantasy can accomplish when employed with an eye to its capabilities and purpose. Dr. Joseph Rex Young lives and work in Dunedin, New Zealand, where he pursues his research interests in Gothic literature, neo-romanticism, and the intellectual history and structure of modern fantasy narrative. He has taught at universities in Bosnia and Herzegovina, Germany, and New Zealand. He's with me today to talk about his new book. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. My name is Carrie Lynn Evans, and I'm joined today by Dr. Joseph Rex Young to talk about his book, George R.R. R. Martin and the Fantasy Forum. So coming to you from quarantine, Joseph, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field. Um, well, I've always been I'm from 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 sort of earliest, earliest childhood, really, I've been I've been fascinated by fantasy, by this um, by this practice that society has of um, of of augmenting reality, of 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 making uh, reality um, more vivid by uh, by and you know, and and celebrating reality by adding something to it, by by adorning it with the supernatural. Um, and I was fascinated by by you know the the supernatural and the paranormal as a child, and then as a teenager, I played a great deal of Dungeons and Dragons. And and uh, as an adult, I well when well when I got to college at least, um, I I started a career in history and classics, um, not thinking that uh, not thinking that it was it was possible really to to study fantasy in a, in, a, in an academic sense. But um, once I'd finished my undergraduate degrees in 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 history and classics, I um, 
I was rather dutifully putting together a PhD uh, uh, proposal in classics because I had I had been bitten by the academic bug certainly, um, and I I became increasingly distracted by the by the fact that there were in the in the literature section of the library, which was just a few shelves over from the classics section. Um, there were actually a, a suite of books on on studying fantasy academically, and so I um, I started putting together a proposal on that, and found a couple of really good uh, really good supervisors in in Paul Tankard and Colin Gibson here at the University of Otago, um, and and put together a um, a, a, a PhD on uh, on fantasy from eighteen about eighteen fifty to nineteen fifty. Um, over the course of the last few years of of the 2000s, um, and since 2011, I've been working as a as a sort of jobbing academic in in the field of of, of modern fantasy literature. Excellent. All right. So maybe next, tell us about how you came to write this particular book. Um. Well, I, I I have to say, having having said I'm a, I'm a, I'm a great fantasy fan and a great a great uh, uh, um, proponent and aficionado of the form, um, Martin's books um, did did escape my notice and until the TV series started, um, in in of course Game of Thrones starts in 2011, and I. Uh, I didn't actually own a television at the time, so all, all I heard about, about Game of Thrones came via, came via the internet. Um, but eventually I, I sat down in front of YouTube and watched a, watched a video of, um, of someone, had, someone had put together of, of, of their favorite scenes from the first 20 episodes or something. And I looked at that and I thought, that does look like precisely the sort of thing I should be, I should be taking an interest in as, a, as an academic working in the field of fantasy. Um, and so I wrote an article on um, on an aspect of of Martin's work. I had that published, and as I was uh, as I was meeting with uh, with a colleague to celebrate my my, uh, my 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 new publication, I started counting on my fingers all the other articles I needed to write about Martin. Having of course read all the books before before publishing the article, of course that's possibly something I should have said earlier. Um, and uh, and this colleague of mine and I ran out of fingers to to, uh, to to count on before I ran out of articles I needed to write. And my my colleague said, "You you realize you're not writing articles about about Martin. You're planning a book." Um, and I said, "I think I am actually." Um, and then I was immediately offered a, an academic posting in Bosnia, which uh, which only lasted a semester, which which, which certainly uh, kept me busy for that semester. I couldn't make make any make any start on this. Um, but when I got to my, my next, uh, uh, posting, which was in Germany, um, I, I put together a, a book proposal on, on, on Martin saying, uh, saying basically, you know, the, the internet is full of jokes about how Jon Snow knows nothing. Um, I, I know why Jon Snow knows nothing. Um, would you like a book on that? Uh, <laughs> and because it's actually, it's actually important to the story. Um, Jon Snow can't know anything. The fact that he knows nothing is what's pushing the story forward. Um, and and I uh, um, and so I put that proposal together and sent it to various publishers, uh, most of whom rejected it. Um, Rutledge did 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 accept it. So I I spent the next I think it was fifteen months pounding a keyboard very hard, 
um, and they like the manuscript, so here we are, basically. That's fantastic. I like it. So let's dive into the material. Um, start by setting the stage for us. Um, you talk about, in your introduction, you talk about how um, the usual academic response that you found um, to Martin's series is generally insufficient, and you wanted to take sort of an opposite approach. You felt that they were misreading Martin. So maybe just discuss a little bit what that academic landscape looks like. Well, part of, part of the uh, yes, part, part of the reason that I, I, I started writing the book, started started actually writing anything on Martin, was that was was the the curious absence of of solid academic material on him um, as late as as late as when I started writing the book, which was two thousand and sixteen. Um, Martin has been or certainly Game of Thrones was seized upon as 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 something that that has a lot of a lot of sides to it and could be looked at from various different angles. So there was. Uh, there was a, a there was a book on Game of Thrones and philosophy using using Martin's story to illustrate philosophical points, which makes perfect sense. Um, there was Game of, Game, Game of Thrones and psychology, trying to psychoanalyze fictional characters, which is always risky, but it's a val- it's a valid exercise. There was a Game of Thrones and history. There was a Game of Thrones and feminism, which which you know again is is an entirely valid thing to, to do, but it's very highly specialized. Um, there was no uh, there was no Game of Thrones and literature, and there was no Game of Thrones and fantasy. Um, and this is what was this was leading to some some ongoing I thought, I thought misconceptions in um, in uh, commentary on Martin, particularly this commentary that he was somehow breaking the rules of fantasy. He wasn't he wasn't like other fantasists. He was he was doing things differently, and he was. Uh, and he uh, he was you know he was uh, the, the term fantasy for people who hate fantasy is or the, the expression fantasy for people who hate fantasy was often uh, often came up and and I said well actually you know if you know the, if you know the rules if you know what the rules of fantasy actually are uh, Martin's not breaking them at all he's what what he's doing is he's employing them to his advantage. Um, and you know, I, I again, I have a PhD in 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 modern fantasy, and I, I have studied um, uh, you know the rules of make believe, the the the, the um, requirements that an author who decides to put the supernatural into a narrative, um, um, you know, places upon themselves the 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 uh, um, the things they have to do. And what struck me, as I say, upon reading Martin's books, was that um, what was not that he was breaking any of these rules, but because he has written such a, a broad, expansive, wide-ranging narrative, uh, he could Im- he could have subplots that employed all of the rules at once, and then he could start sort of conducting them rather li- rather like a conductor with an orchestra who has various parts of his orchestra doing various different things, or his or her, of course, orchestra. Doing various different things, um, um, and he, he can, you know, he or she can bring through, uh, bring through the string section when they need that, when he needs that, and then he can, you know, they can bring through the uh, the woodwind section when they when they need something um, that the woodwind section can do, and then if they need need some big sort of percussive um, blast, they can bring through the percussion section. Um, very, very effectively, Martin is doing that. He's get, he's got various different forms of fantasy working at once and he's bringing uh the 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 particular literary effects produced by you know a particular form um 
um, through at, at the time that best suits his 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 authorial purposes. So he's not uh, he's not breaking the rules of fantasy. He is using them to his advantage. And no one was saying that. And that was leading to some very um, some so I thought some damaging misconceptions about what. Uh, about what he was doing and and how he fitted into the modern genre, and I thought there needed to be a book explaining, in in a meaningful sense, how Martin uh, how Martin uh, 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 relates to, to 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 the rest of modern fantasy. The orchestra conductor is a really nice metaphor. I think that puts it really well. Um, you begin by critiquing uh, the common contrast made between Martin and Tolkien and other mainstay authors of fantasy. Um, and you conclude that Martin may, in fact, be more fruitfully compared to Terry Pratchett. So that is surprising. Tell us why you feel that is. Well, it's I, it, it was I, I possibly meant to be a bit surprising. It was meant to be a bit of a, a bit of a, um, a, a mildly controversial sort of uh, sort of comparison, because of course Martin is is famous as having written this grand sort of very very misanthropic. Uh, um, 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 uh, narrative about about people behaving terribly to each other, and there's all sorts of very dark and graphic things that happen. You know, there there. I mean, there's you know, there's a scene in the books which uh, mysteriously didn't make it into the TV show, um, in which in which a character is actually compelled to eat their own fingers. Um, you know, things like that. It's 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 a very it's a very dark sort of at times quite scary narrative. Whereas Pratchett is famous for. I mean, Pratchett's got got a very a very well, has a very level head. But he's famous for writing these rather more lighthearted comic fantasies. So it was meant to be a little bit, a little bit of a, a little bit of a, of a controversial comparison. But I think it's valid. I mean, the, the idea that I was I was playing with here is is you know, Martin has been called the American Tolkien, um, and if you look at the way he's he's conducting his fantasy, the way that he's particularly the way he's p- depicting his characters, he's actually the almost the opposite of Tolkien. Tolkien's great contribution to fantasy, and you know, Tolkien didn't invent modern fantasy. He's often credited with this. Um, there was there there were fantasy novels before Tolkien, um, um, but you know, Tolkien wrote what I, I think is probably still the definitive modern fantasy novel, which is The Lord of the Rings. What Tolkien brought to fantasy was uh, was an air of of what's called high mimesis. Um, if you look at uh, Northrop Fry's theory of modes, the notion that there are essentially five ways of depicting a literary character: the mythic, the high mimetic, the mythic, the romantic, the high mimetic, the low mimetic, and the ironic. Um, um, Tolkien, who of course spent his uh, his academic career studying medieval literature, things like the Saga of the Volsungs, Beowulf, um, and and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and so forth. These are, are very uh, romantic or high mimetic narratives. They are they are narratives in which you are encouraged to look up to the characters, to see the characters as this grand warrior aristocracy. And Tolkien reiterated that with great skill and great subtlety in his work. Um, um, and if if you look at something like the 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 funeral of Boromir in uh, in the Lord of the Rings, um, that is. A, a picture of of the passing of a great man. That is, you know, the, the, his his mourners lay his body in a in a boat and they comb his hair until it's beautifully uh, done, and they 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 put his they put his his horn and his sword in the in in the boat with him, and they and they let the boat go loose on the river, and they sing 
they sing songs to him as he departs, as if they'd been rehearsing these songs for months, um, despite the fact that they're clearly improvising them. These are these are songs about Boromir and his departure. Um, they, they, they came up with those songs on the spur of the moment, but they are beautifully executed. And then uh, um, um, uh, Boromir's boat passes out through the mouth of the river into the sea, uh, you know, under the stars, it's all very romantic. It's very, it's it, it it's the passing of of a great man, a man of great stature and bravery and courage. Um, um, then that that's 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 Fry's hymemesis in action. Um, what you have, you you have a very very a very similar scene in A Song of Ice and Fire, which is the funeral of Hoster Tully, um, who is a a very old man in the books who dies, and his um. And his son uh, is required to, as 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 is the tradition of his family, um, to put him in a boat and let him loose on the river that the that the fam that runs through the family's estates, and then to fire a burning arrow into that into that boat and set the boat on fire, and the boat will sink and return Hoster Tully to the the waters that he ruled so nobly, and he will be united bodily with his with his realm, um, which which is a, again a very hymometic idea. The difficulty is, and this didn't didn't come through in the TV series when um, when um, this scene was was filmed, um, is that in the books, um, um, Edmure Tully fires his burning arrow at his father's boat and misses three times because he's drunk. He's uh, he um, he you know. Took refuge in 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 alcohol when his when his father died, and at the funeral he's still drunk and can't and can't can't place these arrows effectively. And as such, the 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 the, the great the, the great sort of symbolic high mimetic dignity of this funeral is completely undercut um, by this in by this intrusion of of a very sort of ordinary sort of pathetic um, um, human detail, which is that you know mourners drink and drunks are poor shots. And uh, and the result of that is that this that this thing that the characters are clearly, are clearly trying to get aloft this 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 great sort of dignified hymometic send off for their father um, just clunks it it fails um, it, it 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 falls to pieces um, that is a very good example of uh, of what Northrop Fry calls the ironic mode where we where 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 we as readers know know this understand the situation better than the um, than the uh, than the characters do. We look we we don't look up to Martin's characters. We look down upon them um, as people who clearly don't really appreciate the situation they're in. Ed Muir clearly thought that he could afford to get drunk and that something would purge the intoxicants from his system in time to do this wonderful romantic thing for his father, um, and that doesn't this just doesn't happen. Um, so that's that's. Almost the opposite of, of of what Tolkien does. Whereas Tolkien manages to get us looking up to to his characters, even the very short ones, um, um, Mart Martin gets us looking down upon his characters and thinking, "You fool! You know, you 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 were trying to do something good and it just didn't work because you forgot about that one stupid little detail." You you, and this is actually very similar to something that Pratchett does an awful lot. If you look at uh, Terry Pratchett's Mort. Which is one of his earlier novels, where um, where uh, Death, the Grim Reaper, the, the 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 cloaked skeleton of medieval folklore, um, decides he needs an apprentice, 
and he um, and he goes down to an apprentice fair, and and he approaches Mort at this fair, and it's it's all very dramatic. Um, all the color seems to be drained out of the world as death approaches Mort. Um, his footsteps go click, click, click because it's bone on on stone on the cobblestones. Um, you know, the, his his cloak is billowing out around him as if in slow motion. Um, you know, there, there, there's weird lighting effects happening because death is here because it's you know it's it's the Grim Reaper coming for Mort to offer him a job. Um, but but the effect is rather spoiled by the by a patch of ice. Um, death slips on a patch of ice and he lands on his skeletal backside and he goes, oh bugger. Um, and, 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 and because of course, if, if death really does stalk the streets as the, as the cloaked skeleton of medieval folklore, as Pratchett insists he does, he's going to be as vulnerable to any, as, as vulnerable as the rest of us to certain mishaps. And so he's, he's fallen over, he's slipped and fallen over and the whole, the whole thing just clunks the dig, the whole dramatic dignity of this, of this, of this approach just falls to pieces. And this is something that Pratchett does an awful lot of. There's a there's a, a, a scene in one of his books where a character remarks that it must be it must be romantic to have a dragon perched on your shoulder, a little a little baby dragon perched on your shoulder. Um, and the, a dragon breeder he's talking to says, well, yes, until you until you realize that, you know, you end up with dragon crap down your back, you know, because dragons going to going to going to poop like any other animal and it's going to get all over your clothes so it's not really as dramatic as as, as romantic as all that it's actually quite dirty and, and 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 unpleasant and this is something that pratchett does time and time again as he punctures the pretension of his loftier characters by pointing out that it doesn't quite work by just inserting these little details these little realistic details that just make make the the, the magic you know fail and in that sense uh, um, um, Pratchett and 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 Martin are are, are much more closely um, allied. It, 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 if you look at the modality of their characters, they're much more much more much more closely akin, I think, than than Martin is to Tolkien. So that's why I wrote the the, the American Pratchett chapter. I mean, there there are further sort of permutations of it, but um, but they're quite uh, they're, they're quite uh, involved. So that's 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 why I made the Pratchett comparison. All right. Well, next you look at Martin's use of sexual themes as a device for building characterization in ways he wouldn't be able to do by qualifying their use of violence, for example. So you argue sex and nudity aren't just useful as the episode one hook for each television season, in other words. So tell us what you mean here. Well, the idea I was using, I mean, in the, la in the first chapter, I was using uh, Fry's theory of modes. In this chapter, I was using Isa's phenomenological model of reading. Uh, which argues that the the idea is the idea is is to uh, of of really effective writing is to get the get the reader involved in the uh, in the narrative um, by uh, by including parts by by having the narrative shade off into sort of semi formulated areas that aren't part of the putative subject matter of the of the of the um, of the narrative um, but are, are sort of there guiding the guiding you to to make. Uh, to make um, um, judgments about characters or situations uh, in 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 the actual subject matter of the of the of the narrative, uh, if that makes sense. Um, Martin depicts a a, a, a a culture which it's it's a militocracy. It's ruled by its warriors and generals, and violence does tend to be their go-to problem-solving um, 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 technique. 
and the the result is that you you end up with uh with 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 some quite shocking you know incidences or discussions of violence there's a i mean there's a an incident an incident in uh in the first book where uh sansa stark who is is you know criticized by everybody for being for being a, an empty-headed romantic in the first book um who has a very very sort of sanitized view of 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 militocracy just absent-mindedly talks with a friend about about the best way to display severed heads um to, on on one's castle battlements and this is you know this is a 12-year-old girl talking um yeah it 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 shows that they, you know we've got a real a real culture of violence here this is a real problem now martin can't have one of the uh one of his power uh, power blocks um um behave better have have them be less violent than anybody else less uh less dangerous than anybody else we uh, because that would that would immediately peg them as as the heroes and and we would say okay so we're supposed to sympathize with them and we're supposed to not sympathize with the lannisters and baratheons and all the other groups um um he can't, so he can't afford to have anyone be any less violent than anybody else. Uh, we meet the, the the apparent hero, the protagonist apparent of this story, as he's conducting an, an ex, a public execution, as he beheads someone, and you get to see the head rolling across the uh, rolling across the snow. Um, yeah, if 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 uh, if one group behaves better, they then they then they become the heroes. You can't. Uh, you can't um, 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 do that without sort of capping reader involvement. You want to get readers involved in the narrative. What you can do if you're if you're writing this sort of narrative is you can put in a second spectrum of behavior, a second um, 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 type of behavior, a second sort of story, and and then encourage people to to judge characters based on their behavior with regard to that and. Uh, and, and and as such, you can you can gently guide um, um, people to to sympathize with the right. You can gently guide your readers to sympathize with the right characters, um, and 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 you know back the right you know back the the side that you uh, that you want them to back without without telling them to do it. You can you can do it subtly and 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 quietly and subvert and 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 uh, and um, what's the word? Um, um you can you can do it uh without 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 doing it directly and this is i think what 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 happens with the with the sexual discourse in game of thrones or or, or indeed song of ice and fire um if you look for example at uh at the way that martin first discusses tywin lannister um who's one of his one of his great uh, one of his great villains um we first we first hear about this guy um, in passing in conversation, and one one of the characters says actually thinks to himself, doesn't say anything because he has nothing nice to say. Says I I, I don't like him very much, and then you get this story um, um, from his from Tywin Lannister's son about the time the son married a girl or married a woman that uh, that Tywin disapproved of. This this great this great lord um, had a son who married a peasant. And um, and Tywin responded in in, in 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 a truly shocking and terrifying way, which was by uh, which was by uh, have, forcing the son to watch 
while every guard in the in the uh, in the in the castle um, gang raped this wife of his, um, and then she was thrown out of the castle and and left to fend for herself. And you 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 read that and you think that is a terrifying, awful, disgusting thing for this person to do. Um, and then 150 pages later, we actually meet Tywin. We 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 find Tywin actually finally comes onto the page and starts starts talking. Um, and by that stage, we're already primed to to despise this man, to think he's horrifying, because it because that is of course a disgusting thing for any anyone to do, for anyone to even possibly imagine doing. Um, to say nothing of the fact that the guards were willing to cooperate in this. This is this is horrifying. Um, but you can compare this very directly, for example, with the first time we 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 really see uh, Catelyn and Eddard Stark, two of the, uh, one one of the married couples in his in his, his in this story, interact together, and we first see them um, after they have have in, engaged in in perfectly healthy, normal, you know, um, um, marital relations. And and um, Eddard gets out of bed and opens the window to 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 let the night air in, and and Catelyn's sitting there in bed and she admires her her husband's you know muscular back in in you know, in front of the window, and and thinks I want I wonder if I wonder if I can get pregnant again I wonder if we can have more children together, and this is this is an, an entirely healthy depiction of course of 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 a of a of a woman fancying her lawfully acquired husband and, and valuing their, their relations as as recreational and procreative exercises and um, and that that is it that's that that's a very that that's that's a very sympathetic view of, of of the stark family and and you consistently get this the starks behave a lot better in bed than a lot of the other than a lot of the other characters and and this means that while the Starks are are indeed every bit as every bit as violent and every bit as as savage in 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 the Game of Thrones as as everybody else in the Game of Beds in this little sort of subtle un, 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 unannounced uh, um, secondary narrative that's running parallel to the Game of Thrones they're just much nicer people and so you start without being told that these are better people that this this becomes a this becomes a a mechanism whereby you can you can judge them much much more generously than you would judge the other characters, and as such, you are you are driven to uh, driven to sympathise with them, and indeed with other characters who behave well in bed. There is uh, there is another character, for example, um, Tyrion Lannister, who uh, is is a great fan of prostitution. He 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 uses the services of prostitutes very frequently, um, and and that is 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 of course risky behaviour because uh, laying aside moral concerns, um, the fact that you're you're turning sex into a commercial transaction means that you means that you um, you are, are um, you are putting one partner in a sexual encounter at the disposal of another, which is a which is a risky thing. It greatly heightens the risk of objectification and abuse that that exists in those situations. And then you actually start looking at the way that Tyrion treats prostitutes, and he, he's actually mostly very, very, very nice to them. He, he ensures he pays them generously. He um, treats them well when he when he has a wife when he has a, a lawfully acquired wife forced upon him by his his family. He treats her tremendously well. He he you know he respects her desire that the that the marriage remain unconsummated and everything. He he does 
Um, he, uh, he, 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 you know, this man actually has someone chopped into pieces and made into a stew. Um, he's a, he's every bit as vicious, as vicious as the other characters in the, in the actual putative subject matter of the plot, but he's a much nicer person in this secondary narrative, this, this sort of partly formulated game of beds that Martin, Martin writes about. And as such, he, we remain resiliently quite attracted to him. We, he becomes a, he, be, he remains a very sympathetic character. So this is the way that Martin subtly guides you to sympathize with the right people, basically, by, by, by showing you their behavior in bed and getting you to behave, getting you to, to, to sympathize with the people who behave well in bed, essentially. So this is, this is what I think the purpose of all this sex in Game of Thrones is. I really like that you pointed out like that, because um, uh, it's, so often in narratives that include um, sexual scenes, uh, movies and TV, of course, come to mind, but books as well. So often it feels gratuitous or it feels like it's there for a salacious kind of uh, ornament, as uh, to borrow a word that you use. Um, whereas I felt that it was different in A Game of Thrones. I'll admit I've only read the first two books, so I'm going mostly on the TV show but um, and obviously HBO is using it for that kind of attraction as well. But you feel that those scenes, those encounters, um, even when Sansa is raped by Bolton Ramsey, you feel that it's integral to the plot, like it's necessary to move the plot forward or to do this character work that you're talking about. So I was all I always felt like Game of Thrones did it well, like it was there for a real reason. Um, so I mean, I mean. I Actually, the, the producers of the TV show did go on record once as saying that the the, the nudity was wasn't there to sell the the show to audiences. It was there to actually to sell the show to the network. Um, uh huh. Okay. Which 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 might be a point. But I mean, um, um, uh, Ramsey Bolton is another another really good example. I mean, um, um, his he doesn't actually marry Sansa in the books. He marries somebody else, and I won't tell you who because it's that okay. because it's an because it's an interesting it's an interesting choice. Um, but, um, but he doesn't treat her well, I can assure you of that. Um, and, and you just, you get this and, and, and the, the wedding night is actually substantially toned down for the TV series. It was a, it was a famously controversial episode uh, of the TV series, but actually in, in, in the books that, that scene is far, 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 far grottier and far, far more violent. Um, and, uh, and, and that just underlines the fact that Ramsey Bolton is, mad he's he's a he's a he's a, a mad dog of a of, of a medievalist savage he's 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 the the, the one one of the worst characters um, yes yeah and and uh and uh uh you know he he's it's not necessarily that he, that he does anything particularly worse than 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 other characters in that sense but in in, in the sense of of being a a medievalist militocrat, a, a medievalist warrior, but it is, and you 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 lock down that sense of 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 Ramsay as 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 a mad dog because he just behaves so appallingly in bed. That's right, in a rogues gallery of totally violent people, he <laughs> that's how he stands out. Um, but I want to move on to. Um... Your next chapter, in which you you delve into a couple of very important theoretical concepts concerning the fantasy as a setting. So let's start with the concept of thinning, or maybe you could begin by explaining how this works in fantasy generally, what that means, and then how it manifests in the world of A Song of Ice and Fire. 
Well, one of the great running themes in modern fantasy, if you if you follow it, um, if you if, if you can if you look at, at it widely enough, um, is that there is that there is magic in the world, but that the world is less magical than it used to be. That it that, it, that the world is is somehow the veneer is coming off. The the, the ornamentation is disappearing. Um, that uh, that the you know the world is somehow gallingly lacking some of the magic it used to have. Um, and you see this in in a great deal, particularly of 20th century fantasy. Um, one of one of the great taproot texts of modern modern fantasy. Which George R. R. Martin has um, has uh, uh, cited as an influence, actually, um, and so is Terry Pratchett. In- interestingly, is Jack Vance's Dying Earth novels, um, which is set in a world which is very old and and very and very and very tired and very run down. Um, the, the sun is is about to go out. People suggest that the that you know the end of the world is possibly as little as decades away. Um, um, magicians have have somehow lost access to something like ninety percent of the magic they used to have, um, and they and they squabble very tragicomically about the rest. Yeah, this this world is lacking magic. It used to have magic, and the magic is now going. Um, one of the great examples of this that people are, are, that of course has had had more more general uh, success is the Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings is a tremendously elegiac. Um, text. It, it's, it's a text about um, about the closing movements of aeons of of, of slow loss. Um, the elves are leaving. Um, the entwives have already gone. You know, the dwarves have lost their kingdom and and work as blacksmiths. That's really rough. You know, again, the gloss is coming off. The magic is leaving. Everything that is glamorous or interesting about 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 Middle Earth is dying out, and 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 the hobbits are, are watching this with with considerable considerable concern. It must be said. Um, I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with with uh, Susanna Clarke's uh, Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell. Um, this is uh, this is one of the great fantasy novels of the twenty first century, um, which is is set during the reign of George the Third in England. Um, and it's and, and it's England pretty much as it was in the reign of George III, except that there was there was a history of practical magic. There is clear historical evidence that magicians, that wizards once operated in in England. There are there is this body of literature of, of well attested historical literature about um, the wizards in England and how that how they operated. But you know it's all in the past tense. No one has done any magic for, in, in living memory, um, and the question of why. They don't use magic anymore in England. Is the central point of point of of tension in the narrative? There used to be magic, and there isn't. This is what thinning is. This thinning is this 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 wearing out and this running down of the sort of magical battery of the world. And in a song of ice and fire, this is this is really quite clear. Um, um, there used to be. Uh, a, uh, yeah, a a race of dragon riders in 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 Westeros. These the, you know the Targaryen family used to be not just not just kings, not just not just you know first among equals among the the warrior aristocracy of Westeros. They used to they they used to actually be fundamentally different people. They could they could ride they could they could have some sort of partnership with dragons and they could ride dragons and the dragons would swoop and soar through the air uh you know again 
ornamenting reality, augmenting reality, making it making it bigger and better um, and more interesting than than it than it already is, and getting you to look at it again and 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 really appreciate the world around you. Um, but they wasted that gift. They they mismanaged their dragons terribly. This is what the the companion volume Fire and Blood is all about. It's 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 the story of how you go from um, a Westeros that had thirty dragons living in it to a Westeros that had two dragons living in it, um, and basically because the Targaryens mismanaged their gift, and and that and and with the passing of the dragons, the Targaryens just become just another dynasty. You know, less less stable than most. Um, and eventually, um, eventually, you know, they they are disposed of, and and um, one you know, one, of, one of the great breakthroughs in the first book um, is when Viserys Targaryen um, says to his says to his sister, "Do you want to wake the dragon? Do you want you know? Do you want to make me angry? Do you want to wake the dragon?" And she realizes, Viserys, you you can't wake dragons. The dragons are gone. You know that that this, this that doesn't work anymore. Yeah, this this world is missing something, and people are terribly, terribly upset about this. Um, Tyrion Lannister, when he was a small, remembers when he was a small boy, discuss, you know, asking for a dragon for his birthday, and his and his uncle said, "Oh, the last the last dragon died a hundred years ago, lad." And and Tyrion says that that was so monstrously unfair that I I cried myself to sleep that night at the thought that there are no more dragons. Um, one of the books opens with a bunch of young men, um, you know, smack talking in a tavern, and they talk about that conversation talks to dra- turns to dragons, and one of them says there aren't any dragons anymore, and and one of these kids who's just sort of sitting at the edge of the conversation, um, not saying much, says, I'd really like to see a dragon. I would like that very much. You know, Westeros wants dragons. It wants dragons back. It's miss the dra- those dragons are missing. Um, and, 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 and with it, with them, of course, with this sort of connection to reality, this sort of augmentation and connection and re-engagement with reality that, that dragons offer, people have become very morally disengaged in, in Westeros. The reason this cultural violence has reached such appalling heights as, as it has, um, is that people are just not taking, uh, social rules seriously. Um, you know, knights are supposed to protect the weak. They're supposed to look after the people but most people most knights are use are using their their status as an excuse to to basically engage in violence without repercussion um you know they they they're disengaged from exactly the sorts of exactly the sorts of uh of uh standards of behavior that that their their knightly vows are supposed to make them stay mindful of and so forth you know, society is really suffering from this lack of any of any sort of romantic augmentation of reality so that's what's happening in in uh, that's how thinning uh, respond uh, 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 applies to Song of Ice and Fire. It's a, it, this is a very common theme in modern fantasy, and Martin is is again reiterating it very very well. I think I would agree, and I just think that it's kind of cool that um, uh, in a lot of ways it mirrors the way we feel about contemporary society. You know, like there's always that feeling that the the days gone by were we're better, we're more glorious. And I think Tolkien was doing that a little bit intentionally as well, right? This idea that the medieval period that he studied and um, was so fond of was, you know, had some kind of chivalric moral center that we have lost, which I think is probably in reality not true. <laughs> but well, really, I, I don't think, I, I think 
Martin, Martin uh, uh, Tolkien didn't really concern himself much with chivalry, but he because he was more interested in, in what he called the nameless North, the, the world of the Vikings and the Saxons and so forth, who didn't have knights. Um, but certainly he felt that there was a connection to to reality offered by, by, by the by the, the celebration of the world as it contained monsters, as it contained magic, things like Beowulf, for example, where we, we get we get to see Beowulf's connection to reality as he as he vanquishes monsters. Hmm. Sorry, I wanna... I, I, I... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I, I, I didn't. I didn't mean. Didn't mean to to, to to contradict you there. I was just observing that. That's that's. Um, oh no um... no! You can contradict me. That's totally fine. <laughs> I'm just people just wanting to spark conversation. It's all good. Um. So, chapter four continues by looking at another couple of narrative devices through which the fantasy author can explain the setting to the reader. And so you call these intrusion and recovery, and you write that Martin manages to incorporate these things through the subplots of Jon Snow and Bran Stark, respectively. So tell us about this. Well, I'm I, um, most of what Martin, I, I'm I, in chapters three and four in my book. I'm using I'm using uh, uh, Farrah Mendelssohn's uh, um, re- book Rhetorics of Fantasy, where she says, um. A text must be made a fantasy. It must. It must. Uh, there must be some sort of expository effort made. Um, there must be some sort of expository effort made to to introduce the supernatural to the to the to the the reader. And there are only so many ways of doing that. And the the, the method the author chooses has some remarkable effects on on the way the author on the, on the way the reader uh, relates to the story. Um, most of what Martin does is, is is he uses immersion, which is a um, a, a technique where, whereby the characters simply talk about thing about you know strange things as if as if they are completely normal, such as you know the existence of a great castle called Winterfell or the existence of an enormous great big seven hundred foot wall of ice or something. They talk about this as if it's normal, as if it's do- if it, as if it doesn't mean uh, doesn't mean much um, to them. But of course, it means a great deal to us as readers, and we start piecing the world together rationally via by uh, by uh, talking about uh, by, by 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 critiquing what they are saying by by critiquing their 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 assumptions the assumption that we, they don't they don't need to to talk about the wall means okay that is that is normal this is a very this is a very rational way of looking at a at a, at a, at a world it's a very rational way of of um uh, of critiquing a world of 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 becoming focused on on what's actually there becoming focused very much on um on things and uh, on on pr- often very very problem focused way of uh, way of looking at the world and that does tend to promulgate thinning um because you you are you are stripping away illusion you are you are rationalizing things you're 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 paring it down to what's what's just completely rationally um 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 you know quantifiable in this world um Martin spikes this with uh with particularly with the subplot of Jon Snow um who is following a, a different um um method of 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 uh exposition he's doing what uh, what Mendelssohn calls intrusion fantasy uh where he thinks he understands his world as as immersive fantasy as as immersive focalizers do but he uh but then something comes into his world that he doesn't understand that he can't critique 
And he says, that's interesting. That's odd. I'll keep an eye on that. Um, and then it happens again on a larger scale. And he goes, oh, hang on. This, this, this could be a problem. And, and, and he goes looking for it. He, become, he becomes fix, fixated on the notion that somewhere out there is a truth. Somewhere, somewhere out there is, is, uh, is a, is a, um, um, a, a, a hidden truth to this world, a sort of, a sort of bedrock, a sort of epistemological bedrock. Um, upon which I can I can you know finally stably rest myself again once I've figured out what's really going on and he pursues information about that um, and in doing so he has to display a great deal of faith that that you know to give a uh, to give a to, to quote a, 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 a another famous in, intrusion fantasy he has to believe the truth is out there. Um, he has to believe that 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 uh, that there is something really going on that he can eventually find the truth of, and that means that what he's looking for is encoded into the into the narrative as a truth, as a as a um, um, as a, uh, uh, as an un, an unquestionable thing, something you can't rationalize, something you can't argue with. It's just there, and you have to take it. On its merits, you can't you can't you can't critique it at all. And of course, what John is pursuing is information about this this apparent army of the Walking Dead, which exists beyond the wall. Um, and 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 that you know from the very first chapter of the book and the very first scene of the first episode of the TV series, you know, we know these creatures are out there somewhere. And John's looking for them, and John's pursuit of them encodes them into this into the narrative as this unquestionable truth which is coming and which is going to is going to sort these people out you know um if they don't sort themselves out first um and this this leads this this so the whole this whole culture of violence this whole this whole really quite unpleasant uh culture that martin writes about um is being is is going its merry way is is doing this horrible things to it these horrible things to each other is is pursuing the game of thrones um under the shadow of this looming uh this looming supernatural c- catastrophe which is coming to get them and this of course highlights the problem um this this highlights the uh the the the, the problem i mean um um if you look at something like the, the infamous Red Wedding, you know, when when uh, when several heroic characters are wiped out for, for basically because uh, because, you know, they're um, they're the people they're having dinner with um, decide that, that, that the enemies of these people can offer them can offer them, you know, a better deal than these than these sympathetic characters. And so they just descend on the, these sympathetic characters and kill them. Um, and that robs. uh, uh, uh Westeros of uh, of a huge collection of very sensible, well grounded individuals who 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 could have been uh, great help against the against the Walking Dead when they come, but they but 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 th- those characters are gone now. They're 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 dead, um, except one of them who of course reappears in a, in a in a later volume. But I won't spoil that surprise. Um, and 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 that makes that makes the you know. The red wedding that much worse. The fact that the fact that there is something coming uh, to 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 destroy this culture uh, makes their efforts to destroy themselves all all the more graphic and all the more terrifying and all the more striking. Now this 
is a really good example of another key facet of modern fantasy, which uh, which uh, J.R.R. Tolkien talked about in his nonfiction. I don't know if anyone you're list- who's uh, listening to us um, has read any of Tolkien's nonfiction, but it is remarkable stuff. Tolkien talked about the concept of recovery. He said that uh, magic is used to direct your attention in a in a narrative to a to to what the narrative is really about. Um, um, he used the example of 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 the of the, the the fairy tale of the princess and the frog as an as an example. Um, he said, you know, you, you don't um, you don't end up with a story like that because any anyone ever thought it was possible to to kiss and marry a frog. Um, you you get that story because that idea is ridiculous and people know it's ridiculous. And by putting a princess in this totally supernaturally ridiculous situation, you focus their read the reader's attention on the importance of what the story is really about, which is the importance of keeping promises, uh, the importance of 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 keeping your word. That's you know she promised to marry the frog, so she has to marry the frog. You know it's it's a that's that's how this works. Um, magic is there to draw your attention to the kernel of the story, to the true matter of the story. And the problem that Westeros faces is if they don't pull themselves together and if they don't start behaving better to each other, the, the, this, this, this army of the dead will pull them to pieces. And all of, all of the nasty things, all of the misdeeds and, 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 um, and, tra- and travesties and tragedies that Martin, that Martin writes about, which he's been given such... Uh, such um, credit for writing, where he's actually often been lampooned for being so fixated with. These are effective. These are effective tragedies that 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 strike us as readers because they really shouldn't be happening. Because what these people, sh- what these people should be doing, is uniting against this coming supernatural threat, and it doesn't happen, um, or it hasn't happened yet in the books. Um, and, and, and this is, this is recovery. We are, we are seeing what, what, what's really wrong with these people. What's, what this story is really about. Once we start looking at human behavior in the context of this bizarre, impossible supernatural situation, this is what Tolkien called recovery, the recovery of a clear view of what's really going on. Um, he likened this to, to looking at the world through a freshly cleaned window. And, and so I think Jon Snow's intrusion narrative in the in the context of a, of a um, of of a broadly uh, immersive narrative, where you are encouraged to look at things rationally, um, is uh, really does promulgate Tolkienian recovery. This is another example of of uh, of Martin using the, the the commonplaces and the predilections and 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 capacities of fantasy for what they're for, for using the rules to his advantage and creating this extraordinarily extraordinarily vivid cast of characters in this extraordinarily vivid story, which is made more vivid because there's magic in it. Exactly. Uh, So let's talk more about the magic. Um, In your next couple of chapters, you examine the role of the supernatural, which of course is a defining feature of the fantasy genre. And you write that, and I'll quote, Martin makes a game of reader expectation uh, when it comes to magic. And so he intentionally blurs the line between the sleight of hand trickery scientific effects and actual supernatural and magical. And you argue that in this regard, a song of ice and fire is uniquely suited for Todorovian analysis, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, hopefully. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, despite the fact that his approach to interpreting the range of magical effects in fantasy has lost some of its luster in recent years. So I hope you might permit me a bit of um, literature nerds digression here. Can you first fill us in on what Todorov's schema is and why it has fallen out of favor lately? Well, Tod- I, I, I've never actually, I, I actually, no, I've, I had a student one that Todorov is Bulgarian. He's from, he's, he's, and, and I had a Bulgarian student once who, who talked me through exactly how to pronounce Todorov's first name, which I immediately promptly forgot. Um, um, Zvetan Todorov uh, is a literary, literary critic who, uh, who came up with um, a definition of fantasy in literature and, 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 and a, an analysis of fantasy in literature which at the time, and this was this was the the, the late 1960s, um, his work was translated into English in the early 70s. At the time, was uh, was hailed as very perceptive and, and and a real a real groundbreaker and a real a real um, a real sea change in fantasy. It's become less popular in recent years since about the 19 probably the late 1980s. Um, because actually his definition doesn't apply to most of modern fantasy. Um, Todorov describes fantasy as the period within a narrative, the period in the narrative basically between an inkling of the supernatural and the confirmation of the supernatural. So the, the story between the, the, the phase between something going bump in the night and anyone finding out what that something was. Um, and he says, once you've found out what that something was, if it's a no, if it's a no, if it was if it was just uh, just the wind, just something normal, then you you are in uncanny literature, where you are in literature which was designed to make you uncomfortable, um, but in which there's no magic. Or if it, you find out if it really was a ghost, you are you are in marvelous literature, which is about which is literature which is about impressing you with marvels, things beyond your genuinely beyond your ken. Um, and uh, between these three these three uh, um, staging posts, the uncanny, the the fantastic, and the marvelous, uh, Todorov inserts the the un, the um, fantastic uncanny, which is where you start thinking it might be magic, but it turns out to be normal, and then uh, the uh, the fantastic marvelous, where he uh, where you start out thinking it might be normal, but it turns out to be fantastic. Um, and there are there are in the in these five these five uh, uh, stations of passage, I suppose you might call them, uh, in, in the Todorovian schema, Martin has subplots that, 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 uh, that, uh, uh, that exemplify the effects of all of these. Um, um, I, mean, I possibly don't need to give them all, but um, if I just go with, with the uncanny, the fantastic, and the marvelous, um, there's, there's a lot that's very uncanny in this narrative. There's a lot that's that's clearly designed to make you uncomfortable. One character who really exemplifies this is Arya Stark, um, who uh, who uh, goes from being from from who's a child who in, ends up actually as as, a, as an almost serial as a serial murderer um, as as she um, as she goes through you know these wars and these difficulties that that Martin chronicles. Um, and she develops a very firm set of mor- sense of morality, and and she starts avenging herself upon people who 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 upset her by killing them. This is a very uncanny idea, a very a very a very um, a very uh, scary idea. This idea that that, that a child who at the, at the, even at this stage, even in book five, is still only uh, eleven or twelve years old, could be in this sort of could be you know, 
in this sort of this sort of mindset. Um, that's 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 very uncanny. So whereas Arya represents the the Todorovian uh, uncanny, um, um, Varys represents uh, Varys the Spider represents uh, the uh, the Todorovian fantastic. We uh, we hear it, Varys is the is the spy master of Westeros, and he's a eunuch. He was castrated at some point in his in his past, and he tells a story to another character about how he was castrated in a, in a, in a foreign in exotic foreign city by a man who was apparently trying to contact demons or something via a, a terrible ritual which required him to castrate a boy and and burn what he cut off and uh, and supposedly a demon's voice would rise from the flames and Varys said I watched this happen and I heard a voice from the flames and um and the other character says gosh that's that's a terrible story I'm very I'm very sorry to hear that and and Varys says, well, yes, you're very sorry, but you don't believe me, do you? And 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 indeed, the other character doesn't quite. He doesn't doesn't. He's not entirely on board with this. So you see, what we have here is a report of the supernatural in the narrative, which we are not encouraged to credit necessarily one way or the other to see as as authoritative or 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 as nonsense. We we there's a tension here. We don't know if Varys was telling the story. You know, um, he might be. Uh, he, we don't know if Varys was telling the truth. Sorry, he might be, but of course, this man lies for a living. Why should you trust anything he says? Um, um, so Varys really, really identif- uh, exemplifies the the Todorovian fantastic. This tension about whether magic is real or not, which is something that isn't very common in a lot of modern fantasy. Um, um, you know, if if uh, if you know, Hagrid says to Harry, Harry Potter, you're a wizard, Harry, and Harry doubts that at all, then the story doesn't go anywhere. You know, that's that that story just involves magic. You know, magic is there and it's a it's a fact of life with with regard to Varys's subplot in A Song of Ice and Fire. It's not necessarily a fact of life or not. We don't know. It's a point of tension. And this is the, the Todorovian fantastic, which is why Todorov's model of the fantastic isn't very popular with modern with modern critics. Um, because uh, because it tends to exclude most of the of the texts we think of today as fantasy. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, you have the Todorovian notion of the marvelous, where the supernatural does exist. And the obvious example of that in A Song of Ice and Fire is uh, is uh, again Jon Snow and Sam Tarly investigating this army of the dead. Um, if if they uh, if they don't believe wholeheartedly, and if they if they don't have you believing wholeheartedly. That the uh, that the dead are out there and, and that they are hunting these monsters, uh, then um, then the story doesn't make any sense. So that's that's the Todorovian marvelous, the unambiguous existence of magic. Um, so this 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 scheme that Todorov put up, well, this sort of this sort of uh, continuum from the uncanny to the marvelous, with with fantasy as this point of tension in the middle, um, was once very popular. It is increasingly, or it, it is decreasingly, shall I say, popular with critics because it excludes things like. Harry Potter and the Lord of the Rings and Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell and everything that we tend to think of as modern fantasy. So that's why it's it's no longer popular. But I think because of the way that Martin has set up the way that he depicts and and reports the supernatural, it is it is a valid tool for 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 for, for talking about his uh, his his narrative. Excellent. Um, so next you look at how the characters themselves respond to the supernatural within the text, and you draw on David Sandner's taxonomy of four distinct character reactions to supernatural phenomenon. 
Um, and so this again goes to your point that Martin's series is not so much unconventional as it is constructively wide ranging in its orthodoxy is the words that you use. So if you could maybe take us through these. Right. Well, there's um, David Sandner relatively recently uh, came up with a book in which he uh, he uh, abstracted um, um, you know, supernatural literature, the 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 use of the of 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 magic and literature, in with reference to the way that the characters respond to it, um, he says that uh, he says there's basically only four possible responses you can give to a um, to to the 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 discovery of magic in a narrative. Um, these are possession, uh, um, domestication, fragmentation, and uh, and dispossession. Um, and, and he says that re really the, 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 the way that the magic, uh, um, um, affects the story is it prompts one of, one of these responses in, in the characters. And, uh, and what's interesting is that in, in the various subplots of A Song of Ice and Fire, um, um, you have, you have examples of all four of these responses from, from various different characters. Did you want to give us some examples? Okay, but I say yes, yes. I'm sorry. Um, I mean, if possession, for example. Possession is where you try to take the supernatural in hand. You don't want it. You you fear its consequences, perhaps, and you um, and and you you want to you want to get things back to normal. Damn it! Before before there was magic, when everything was good, um, and uh, and a character who 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 does that very very effectively. Is Sam Tarley, who is is Jon Snow's Man Friday, his, his sort of um, assistant uh, in the narrative, and who who is in fact encounters uh, one of these terrifying monsters, one of the others, these these ice demons of Westerosi folklore, um, and uh, and Sam, of course, is, is is believes himself to be a great coward. He believes himself to he, he's been packed off to the wall because he's no good for anything. Um, He's uh, he's a, he's a terrible coward, um, but confronted with this this terrifying monster um, who uh, who who menaces the, the 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 baby that he's he's guarding at the time who wants to steal this baby. Um, Sam, um, dare I say it, mans up. He starts to act like like a, like like a, a a very a very brave stereotypically brave masculine sort of fellow after having been feminized repeatedly by the other characters, by the way. Um, and he pulls out the, the 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 only weapon he has left, which is a stone dagger, which he's been given, and he stabs this monster, and and this suffices to 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 kill the monster. Um, and 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 we and we have this 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 act of possession of taking the supernatural in hand of saying no, I like I like the way things were I like the way things were before the magic, and I want to get that under control. Um, and in that, you know. Sam reveals his true colors. He he is he is actually a really brave person, even even if he's he's often seen not to be or feel, feels himself not to be. And in this darkest of possible circumstances, he measures up. He he tests out all the way. Um, with regard to domestication, domestication is the response in in Sandner's um, schema where you try to get magic working for you. Where you think, well, okay, I can take this 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 magic, and I can use magic, and I can use it to improve my circumstances. I can use it to improve my own uh, place in the world. And the character who exemplifies that is Stannis Baratheon, 
the kid who is supposedly the rightful king of Westeros, but no one wants him. So he's constantly having to try and press his claim. And he has no he has no no earthly support. So he he seeks support from basically from magic, from a wizard. He takes up with with Melisandre, this very strange um, uh, foreign wizard who's arrived in Westeros. And uh, and he tries to use her magic um, to to improve his lot without actually changing what he believes his lot is in light of the existence of magic. If you follow me, he's still Stannis. He's still doing what he always wanted to do. He's just trying to get the magic working for him. Um, so that's an example of, of of dispossession, and it shows what what a, what a driven and 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 often ultimately rather small minded man. Stannis really is. He's he he just wants to be a royal. He just wants to be a king. He doesn't want to be, you know, the chosen one of this of this strange magical religion, which Melisandre believes him to be. He's not interested in 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 that sort of apotheosis. He just wants to be king, and it shows what who he really is. Um, with regard to fragmentation, fragmentation is is the the third Sandnerian response. This is. Uh, the response given by by Davos Seaworth. This is the this is the uh, the response where you don't like the magic, you don't want it, um, but you can't see a way around it. You can't you can't see a way to beating it. Um, this is this is defeat by magic. This is this is you know the, uh, the 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 inability to take it in hand, the inability to to find the strength within within yourself to to um, to force it. Um, back out of the world, and you just have to put up with this 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 relationship. And this is the relationship that Devos Seaworth, who is Stannis's most trusted advisor, um, has to live with because he doesn't like magic. He 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 actually in in the books he actually explicitly rejects it. He uh, he think he thinks through all, all the stories he's heard about magical heroes with magical swords, and he says that's not me. That's not what I want. That's not what I what I value. I, if that's the cost of magic, I will, I will, I will opt out. But of course he's forced into a partnership with magic. He's forced into a partnership with Stannis and Melisandre. He, he works really hard to, to reconcile himself with the magic or, or indeed to try to try to force the magic out of his, out of his life. He actually once takes a swing at Melisandre with a dagger, um, in, in the, in, in the books. I forget if that happens in the TV series. Um, but he can't, and and he's just forced into this very unhappy relationship with 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 it with a with a with a magic with, with with magic that he just doesn't doesn't want, because um, he doesn't want to be a hero. He doesn't want to be a great man. He doesn't necessarily even want in, want to be an aristocrat. He just wants to go back to his wife and kids and be a good father. And we get a very clear idea of what he really wants in life um, from his from his response to the mag to the magic. This 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 fragmentary this fragmentation response. Um, um, and then the, 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 the final, uh, San response is dispossession, the giving up of the self, the, re the revision of the self, the, 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 the recreation of the self in relation to the discovery of magic. And the character who does this most effectively in Song of Ice and Fire is Daenerys Targaryen, who after her, after her husband, Khal Drogo dies, um, very stupidly from, from, um, again, a very ironic thing, you know, he, he, he assumes that he won't get his, his, his injuries won't get infected because he's a, he's a big, important man, but he does. And he, yeah, you know, and he dies. Um, she puts her dragon eggs, her precious treasured dragon eggs on his funeral pyre. And as the pyre is burning, walks into the pyre herself and, uh, people think she's, she's committing suicide. 
actually, this is this is something that she's worked out will revive the dragon eggs, and she and she emerges unburnt from this pyre with three baby dragons from her three dragon eggs. Um, and she gives up her old identity, which is the identity of the wife of the man who was going to conquer Westeros, and 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 embraces this new, far greater identity as the mother of dragons. This is exactly the sort of thing that Stannis, um, trying to domesticate magic, didn't want. He just wanted to be king, um, and he didn't care about being a, a messiah. She didn't necessarily want to be a king, but she does want to be a messiah, and she and she and she becomes one, and her people. Her people follow her with a sort of religious devotion now because she has returned dragons to the world. So those are those are Sandman's four responses, and they're all they're all evident in uh, in uh, in Martin's work. And you also say that um, uh, the echo. Okay, you also say that Daenerys' relationship with her dragons moves the world of A Song of Ice and Fire from thinning to formalized healing which means that in addition to everything else, Martin's series does in fact engage in the romantic high argument of modern fantasy. So tell us what you mean by that. Right. Well, as, as we've, as we've discussed earlier, um, fantasy narratives often take place in worlds that have been somehow gallingly denuded of their fantasy, that they're, they are missing something that they are not as magical as they used to be. Magical worlds hurt in this way so that they can heal the actual process of uh, the actual narrative, the actual pr- the plot of a fantasy narrative, tends to be the reversion, the, the, the reversing of this of this uh, this thinning, or at least a, a, an authoritative um, indication they can get no worse. Things do get better. The world is healed, um, and of course, uh, Daenerys does this most obviously in in that she has she has. Um, she has re- restored dragons to the world. There are honest to goodness dragons in this world again, thanks to this act of, of very courageous dispossession by this 15 year old girl. She is in the in the in the in the books. It's actually one of the interesting things about the books. If you if you read them after you've seen the TV show, is how young everybody is. Everyone is about a decade younger than they look in the in the TV show. But um, um, yeah. Daenerys has healed the world. The, the the core problem that there are no dragons she has she has rectified, and by 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 giving uh, by giving this uh, the, the world back its dragons by giving back this 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 very powerful sort of ornamentation to what is this by by adding adding something that you know, that might be to what is. Of course, this this helps us to to re. Uh, to to re-engage with the world, and it helps everyone around her to to, to re-engage with the world. And this is a deeply romantic sort of idea. This 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 plays very much to M. H. Abrams's idea of of natural supernaturalism. Um, that the the purpose of literature was, and he, he borrowed this from William Wordsworth. He, he analyzed William Wordsworth's um, um, letters and poems, and 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 came up with with this. As the um, as the driving force behind Wordsworth's idea um, was that the purpose of uh, of literature was to celebrate the observable universe and in 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 the course of doing that to celebrate humanity's ability to observe that universe and that can and and the resulting connection that we got with the world around us through our through our senses and. Um, so that that is that is the romantic high argument, the notion that that the the purpose of literature is to is to is to help us celebrate the world, 
and uh, and by by restoring uh, missing magic to a world which is established as missing it, fantasy authors do that because they restore the decoration. They put they put you know the the augmentation back in the world, and as such, we re-engage with it. We re-engage with everything. You know, we we re-engage with this this numbing cycle of 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 violence and vengeance that happens in a Song of Ice and Fire because we know that you know that that these people need to pull themselves together because this this you know, because this magical threat is coming we re-engage with the with the glamour and power of this rom- of this medieval world because dragons are once again swooping through its skies this is a this is a very powerful um um sort of a sort of a a a, a way of of Putting literature together, and this is this is the, the you know the secret to the success of I think of fantasy as a genre, and it also of course it, it's it's another example of Tolkienian recovery. You know, we 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 look again at something we might have missed because of the of the arresting strangeness of magic uh, in the narrative. Oh, that's really wonderful. Oh, that's really wonderful. Um, before we go, I want to take the opportunity to just chat with you about what you see as the overall significance of the massive popularity of George R. R. Martin's series. I study science fiction in my scholarly life, which perhaps makes me biased, but I really believe that the speculative genres are the most important and the most insightful modes of storytelling for us today. And I think that accounts in large part for their ever-growing popularity in the mainstream. And I'm wondering what you think of that. Would you agree with me? I I tend to agree with you. I think because because magic because fantasy is ultimately the the story of 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 taking a thinned world and 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 as i say restoring it and 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 watching it burst back into life and and watching this this great act of healing um that that is the the great uh the great uh, um um you know prevailing direction of traffic in in modern fantasy and you see it in time and again in in tolkien in rowling in clark in 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 Martin, uh, you see it in even very obscure fantasists, like or possibly obscure fantasists like Hope Mirrilees. Um, you know, we, fantasy readers get to watch the world burst back into life, you know, constantly, and they are and they and they are constantly, as a result, re-engaging with 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 what, what with what's going on around them. They don't have their heads in the clouds. They are much more strongly connected. To the world because they have seen the world celebrated and augmented and and made great in this in this way time and again and this is why speculative fiction is such such a tremendously popular genre and why it is and in many respects I think the the dominant popular genre uh, in in uh, in world in world literature today over the last certainly forty or fifty years and uh, and I think you know there, there is a, there is a suspicion of it in academia I've certainly encountered this. Um, of of you know that that it's that it's I mean, people have said it's 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 literature for pretentious teenagers or you know think things like that and I I think there's a great deal more to it than that I think we are watching something that really does re- recapitulate in the modern era for modern sensibilities the, the 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 great mission that the Romantic poets set for themselves at the beginning of the 19th century and 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 I and I think. That is why people get so excited about it. I mean, walking around the, the university campus that I spend most of my time on these days, it's amazing how often you come across people with Harry Potter tattoos. 
Um, now, I don't, I don't, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily seek to seek to 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 endorse that as a good idea, but at the same time, it shows a, a demonstration of an engagement with a narrative and an engagement with 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 with, with you know the world around them that you don't see in, in, in from from a lot of mimetic literature you don't i mean you know break, breaking bad is 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 a terrific tv show um but you know, it, 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 people haven't really engaged with it to quite the same in quite the same way that that uh that game of thrones has because although although uh uh you can you you can learn a lot about human nature and learn a lot about people from from following something like like breaking bad you know you can't find out what a person is. You can't. You can't recover this 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 perfect nubbin of 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 the perfect kernel of humanity that you get in a character like Davos Seaworth or Arya Stark or or, or Jon Snow in A Song of Ice and Fire because there's no point of comparison. There's no there's no no enigma. There's no magic um, there that is that is being the, the 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 defining test of who they are as a person. That's how speculative fiction works, and that's why it's so popular. I think. I really love that. Well, Joseph, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you very much for agreeing to come on the show. I really, really enjoyed your book. Uh, but before we go, um, can you tell us what you're currently working on? Um, well, at the moment, my, um, um, my, I mean, my university has a, has a, 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 um, a med school and we, uh, we have uh, that, well, that, that med school uh, uh, employs um, people who are trained in the humanities to give third-year med students um, short courses on humanities subjects, um, basically to give them some sense of of what goes on at, at a real, you know, I say a real, at, what goes on at, at the rest of university. Of course, med students are working like mad to get the best marks they can in, in medical science to begin with, and then they're at med school where they learn medicine. You know, you've got sensible, grounded gifted intellects who off, who you know who are focusing on one thing at the exclusion of all else and the the idea is that um that that they should have some exposure to what else is going on in in academia they should have some sense of of what what else happens at university and i've been asked to put together um a short humanities course uh, looking at uh, a song of ice and fire um and 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 essentially Producing um, a series of seminars based on based on, on essentially on my book um, for for the med school. So I'm working on that. Um, I'm also working on a, an article about quite why the TV series Game of Thrones has, has had such this this drastic reversal of critical fortunes in its later seasons. Um, people really do not like the last couple of seasons of Game of Thrones, and I'm I, I've got a pretty good idea of why, and I'm I'm grappling with with explaining that in prose. Oh, I think that's really great. Um, I uh, I teach a, a well, I taught a rhetoric class last year and opened the uh, first class to a discussion of of whatever the students wanted to argue. And there was a student that was very passionate about arguing why season eight of Game of Thrones was terrible. Um, and you hear this so often, and I saw a lot of it on the internet as well. I like, I'm sure you did. And but he actually had a fairly well reasoned argument uh and he wasn't a literature student either but he could articulate very well how he thought the plot started to devolve and how the decisions started to not add up for him and i thought that was thought that was really interesting so i i'm really looking forward to following up on your work on that question 
But it's 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 not that it's rushed actually. It's a, it's I think I think the last two seasons were interminably drawn out. Um, but that's I, I that would be another another whole another whole thing we'd have to we we'd have to get into. I'd have to explain myself um, in in great detail to explain what I mean by that. Sure. And I actually was, um, I didn't mind the last two seasons at all. Um, as I I put it to the students, I'm that kind of fan, though. I feel like I'm just grateful that people give me content that I really, really love. Mm. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just less in the mindset to be critical. Well, there's an element of, but, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I, get, I, I've, I have heard that in the, with the current difficulties with everyone self-isolating, um, Martin is apparently using the time to power to, to forge ahead with the next book. Uh, he's apparently making some very very strong progress. Um, we, we'll 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 see where that goes. I remain I retain every confidence we, we will eventually see the, the the end of this series from Martin. And I just I could I just say as much fun as the TV series was, and as much use as it was to get the the uh, to get the, uh, the 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 book off the ground, apart from anything else. Um, I do think the books tell a markedly superior version of the story, and I really would recommend people, even if they've seen the TV show, um, that they really ought to ought, really ought to read Martin's books because the way he the way he he writes and the way that he uses the 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 the, the proclivities of fantasy to his advantage really merits merits um, the the the, uh, the the patronage of fans. Well, as I mentioned in my email to you. Um... Your book has really inspired me to go back to the series. Um, I probably won't reread the first one, but I may just reread the second one and to power through the rest of them. Because I think, um, especially reading your take on um, the fantasy theory that's going on throughout the novels, um, that just really lights the fire of my interest for going back to these. So, well, I've yeah, I mean, I've I've taken uh, I've taken. To, to describing these these fantasy theories as being a bit like the mazes that scientists supposedly use to, te- to, to teach to, to test the, the learning abilities of mice. You know, if you let a mice, uh, if you let a mouse, sorry, loose in a maze, um, you can learn a lot about it, how it about it from how it finds its way out. And I said, no one is letting Martin loose in the mazes of of theory surrounding fantasy. Um, and I said, if, if, if we, if, if we do that, then we can learn a great deal about how he fits in with, with, with the modern tradition. And I think I have, so there you are. <laughs> it's another really good metaphor and it, uh, it'll work really well for your, uh, science students, right? I hope. Well, I, I hope so. We'll see how we go. <laughs> that sounds really great. Uh, I wish you good luck on that. And I want to thank you again for being on the show today. It was really, really fun. I'm glad to have a chance to chat with you in person about it. So I'll wish you a good evening. Thank you for having me. I want to thank you for listening to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Joseph Rex Young about his new book, George R.R. Martin and the Fantasy Form, published by Rutledge. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. The New Books Network is a not-for-profit organization, so all the buzz you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the material we cover. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Linland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E. L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. 
Also, be sure to like the new Books and Literary Studies channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you an à la prochaine from Quebec until my next conversation about new books.